Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. If we were just pass around a sheet of paper this morning or hand out little slips of paper and just say, on that sheet of paper, write down what you think is the saddest chapter, the saddest episode, the saddest event in all of the Bible. What kind of responses do you think we would get to that question? I have no doubt that some people might write down the cross. Or the events leading up to the cross. Maybe Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he bled, as it were, drops of blood. I think some might write down the flood. And, And the simple fact behind the flood that the reason the flood came was because God was sorry that he had even created mankind because of mankind's sin. Some might write down the fall of Jerusalem recorded in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, and a parable in the book of Ezekiel. Some might even write down Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, where we're told that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple and from the city because of just how wicked His own people had become. There might be some who would write down a person in the Bible and something that person did. David's sin with Bathsheba, for example, or maybe when uh, Peter denied Christ. we, We might get all those responses. And I suppose there's no necessarily right or wrong answer to that question. It's just something... People might be interested. If you were to narrow it down, what would you choose? But I also think if we were to hand out sheets of paper and ask you to write that down, that one of the the answers we would get would be found very near the beginning of Scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the chapter we sometimes refer to as the fall of man or the fall of mankind, where Adam and Eve in that perfect garden paradise, the Garden of Eden, decided anyway to sin, given to temptation, and fall. You know, all these centuries later, that phrase, Garden of Eden, still means so much to us. We still have that picture, even just using that terminology, Garden of Eden, of this paradise and just how wonderful things were there before Genesis chapter 3 ever came along. Of all the accounts we mentioned a few moments ago, and others people might think of, one of the things that makes what Adam and Eve did stand out was not just because it was the first sin in the world, but it was also because they did not know. They literally did not know what it was like to live in a world with the effects of sin in it until they themselves brought those effects into the world. But it was not without warning, was it? One of the gracious things about God is that He does not just tell us to choose right and to avoid wrong. God is gracious enough to tell us what will happen when we choose right by reward and what will happen if we choose evil or wrong by punishment. And He did that with those first people, did He not? All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we're told, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
you may surely eat of the fruit of the tree of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And he told them why. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did. Here was God telling them exactly what they needed to hear, giving the command as well as the end result of the command, and yet they chose unwisely. Death, separation, eating upon the fruit. Though Adam and Eve did not die physically right in the moment, they immediately understood what it was like to be separated from God. There's fear, there's guilt, there's lostness. And some of you are thinking, I thought Ethan read a few moments ago, not from Genesis. And I thought on Sunday mornings we were studying the words of Jesus. And here we are all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. What in the world does this have anything to do with John chapter 14? And the answer to that is found in the punishment that God gave. You remember upon the sin that Adam and Eve com- uh, committed that God gave punishment to the man, God gave punishment to the woman, and then God punished the serpent himself. Cursed you shall be above all cattle or all beasts. On your belly you shall go all the days of your life. And then in Genesis 3 verse 15, God told the serpent, I will put enmity, and that's a word I don't use very often. It basically just means a, a tension a disgust in other tra- places in the King James Bible, it's actually translated as hatred. But I will put enmity, this tension between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed, and here's the hope. He shall bruise, literally crush, your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? Martin Luther, writing about that passage, called this the Proto-Evangelium. Now, I don't talk like that. The first evangel, the first gospel. Because here, Adam and Eve had brought sin into the world, and yet God still provided a glimmer of hope. The one who was to come, this seed of woman, this lineage, this genealogy, somewhere along the line, there's going to be hope. And it's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're calling our lesson this morning from Eden to I am. Because what I want to do this morning is connect the effects of the sin that Adam and Eve felt all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to what Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6. And the reason is not so we can say, wow, isn't that need a connection? It's because each time you and I choose to sin, we have the same effects, but we also have the same hope because of what Jesus said and did based upon that statement in John 14 and verse 6. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first thing we know is there was a broken relationship. There's something interesting found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. We know the rest of the story, but the verse begins by telling us that the Lord God came in the cool of the day. It's, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? That God was coming through this, this garden, and they, and they heard that. Because we know the rest of the story and how negative this, this turns out, all those sorts of things, we can lose what's found in that one idea that how, how did they know that this was God if it hadn't happened before? How do they know this was God coming in the garden, walking there, coming near them in the cool of the day if if this had never happened before? See, there was an intimacy, a connection 
between Adam and Eve and God that I'm not sure we can really understand, at least at this point in their lives. We sometimes sing about the, the concept, don't we? That song, I come to the garden alone. And that chorus, that song, he walks with me, he talks with me. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I, I, that, that's beautiful. And I'm not trying to say we shouldn't sing the song. We should. It's a beautiful song. And, and there is a sense in which each of our individual relationships with God is different than other people because we have different experiences and connections and so on and so forth. But none of us in this life, can fully understand the relationship, the closeness, the intimacy that Adam and Eve felt with God before their sin. He was right there with them. What it looked like, what it was actually like, we can't even grasp. But God really was there with them. And then they chose to sin. They chose to break the relationship. The Bible very often calls... Our relationship with God, not just a commitment, he calls it a covenant, an agreement with both sides having a part in it. Adam and Eve knew what it was like to break the covenant. And that's why Adam would say in verse 10 that we heard you coming and we hid ourselves. We hid ourselves because he knew what it was like to now be on the wrong side of this broken relationship. Here they had made this decision. To break the relationship, to break the covenant, to change things in that fundamental way. How in the world could that relationship ever be mended again? I am the way. When Jesus used that terminology in John 14 and verse 6, why why did he say it that way? It's because of how that verse ends. No one comes to the Father except through me or but by me. That seems a little strange, does it not? Because Adam and Eve lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet Jesus is saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Folks, that includes Adam and Eve. That includes Moses. That includes Noah. It includes Abraham. Everyone before the cross did not come to the Lord ultimately until Jesus provided the perfect sacrifice. When Jesus spoke of himself as the way, I think it's beautiful that the New Testament church took that same terminology and used it it for themselves. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is going towards Damascus, we often say he's going there to persecute the church, and that's absolutely true. But the text actually says in Acts chapter 9 and verse 2 that he was going to see if he could find any who were of the way. You see, they took that same terminology that Jesus used of himself and applied it to the church. They were following the way. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they chose to break the relationship with God. We'll we'll reference this verse now. We'll quote it later. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, we're told that sin is a separator. Your iniquities have separated you between, uh, put a separation between you and your God. We'll quote that whole text in just, just a moment. But when they chose to sin in the Old Testament times, how could they ever make up for that? Well, they brought all those sacrifices, right? But Hebrews 10 and verse 4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never really take away sins. We often use the terminology that those sacrifices rolled the sins forward, especially the Day of Atonement. 
when they brought those sacrifices on that day, year after year after year, it was a reminder every year of their sin, but it did atone or cover over for those sins for a year. But then the next year, guess what they had to do? They had to bring those sacrifices again. And so every year they were reminded that these sacrifices, all this blood we're shedding on, on the altar, it can't really take away fully sin. But Jesus can. Because Jesus is the way. He's the only way to mend a broken relationship with God. Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 12 for New Testament Christians that we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's interesting terminology, isn't it? Because a sacrifice doesn't live. A sacrifice in the Old Testament law was burned on the altar. And so we're not told now to bring animal sacrifices. We're also not told to to, to kill ourselves or something like that in, in, in our faith. But we are to be a living sacrifice. Because of what Jesus did. Why would I ever give my life to the service of the Lord? And why would I ever do that, especially when I've chosen to sin and, and mend that, break that relationship? Why would I ever decide to, to, to go, go at it again and try and do it again? I am the way. The only way. Our relationship with God can be mended is because of Jesus. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, they also lost something of a divine understanding. Now, I'm not saying by, by using that terminology that they had some kind of miraculous knowledge. That's, that's not my point. What I mean is Adam and Eve were there having the privilege of talking with God face to face. They knew everything God needed for them to know. They had divine understanding because they got the understanding from Him, directly from God. And yet... They chose to break that and to chart their own course. Isn't that part of what the serpent used in his temptation, of, especially of Eve? If you look carefully at the temptation found in Genesis chapter 3, it deals with, with knowledge or intellect or understanding. Genesis 3, beginning of verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees, the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's all kinds of subtleties in that temptation. The serpent was more subtle than any of the other animals of the garden, but... One of the subtleties of that is God is withholding something from you. God knows something you don't know, but if you knew it, your life would be a whole lot better. See how subtle that is? God hasn't given you the full understanding. He hasn't really given you everything that you need or everything that you want to know. And yet hadn't He? Remember what we said at the beginning of our time? God had not just told them what to do and what to avoid. He had told them why. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough for them to know? But Satan comes in, the serpent comes in, and subtly says, God has not told you really everything. You need to have your eyes really opened so that you can be, some translations have like God's, really, it's like God, you can, you can have this divine knowledge that you don't really, really fully have. And now they've taken that fruit. Now they have done that. Now they have decided, I want to know more. I want to be more like God. How can that ever be mended? Once they've charted their own course. I am the truth. Now, 
it's easy to object and say Adam and Eve could not have possibly known about Jesus. <laughs> it's not possible. But folks, everything that happens from the moment Adam and Eve take that fruit and eat of it, literally everything in Scripture from that point on is pointing forward to God revealing the fullness of His truth in Christ. That's why John would open his account of the gospel describing Jesus as the Word and say the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and He was full of grace and truth. Jesus was the fullness of God's truth revealed. Jesus was the completeness of God's truth revealed. He's the only way we can understand all about the truth of God. When people made sacrifices in the Old Testament, it pointed forward to a time when there was only one sacrifice. We might say a perfect sacrifice. When you read about the priests in the Old Testament, those mediators, those go-betweens between mankind and God, the ones who offer the sacrifices, It pointed forward to the fact that there was a time when there would be one mediator for all mankind, and he wouldn't have to stand up to do his job. The book of Hebrews says he has sat down because his job is done. Every time you read about things like the temple in the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to perfect worship through Christ. Every time you read about blood in the Old Testament uh, being sprinkled or poured to, to purify something, to make it holy, it was pointing forward to the blood that could be the only thing that would purify and cleanse a soul. And isn't that even found in Genesis chapter 3? One of the most interesting things found in Genesis chapter 3 is that though God punishes Adam and Eve, He also provides for them, does He not? They had made those loins or those cloths of fig leaves and put them on, but but God said, I'm going to make for you skins of animals. Question, where did those skins come from? Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. And it would point forward to a time when the blood of Christ would take away all sin all the way back to the garden and all the way forward to you and I and should the world continue even beyond us. The truth was found in Jesus. And so Jesus could say to His Father that how do we find the truth? He would say in that high priestly prayer of John 17 in verse verse 17, Your word is truth. And Paul would take the same terminology and describe the Bible as the word of truth in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Jesus would say in John 10 and verse 35, in an almost parenthetical statement, in fact, in some Bibles, it is in parentheses, the Scripture cannot be broken. Where do we find truth? When we, like Adam and Eve, make the decision that I'm going to chart my own path, I'm going to try to find my own way, and I realize that way is not right, that way is wrong, that way is against the way of God, how can I possibly find the way? I am the way. And the words that I say cannot be broken. Adam and Eve also, when they committed that sin back in the garden, for the first time ever knew the fear of death. God had told them, when you eat of that fruit, you'll die. You will surely die. You don't find words like surely very often in Scripture because when it's found, it, I mean, it's absolutely certain you will surely die. And I may be pushed back before, well, they, they didn't die. They didn't like, it's not like they dropped dead right there. But may I suggest to you that God's promise was absolutely true there in the Garden of Eden? And it's true in a couple of ways. 
Because death at its most basic level just means a separation. That's really all the word means. Remember, James describes physical death as the body without the soul with a spirit. That's physical death. Spiritual death is us separated from God. And so you see Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. God's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. When we choose to sin, that's what we're choosing. It's a separation. Adam and Eve spiritually died when they chose that that fruit in the garden because they chose a different way and they chose to spiritually separate themselves from God. But I would also suggest to you there is a physical side to this. No, they didn't just fall over dead there in the garden. But I've heard it said before that, that they began to die that day. That's not a bad way of wording it. But may I suggest a different way of wording it? I would suggest this, that for the first time, they began to realize what mortality was. Do you remember what their reaction was when they committed this sin? They were ashamed. They hid themselves. They specifically said, because we were naked, we had clothes on. And and there's there's a side of that 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 has all kinds of things. But There's also a side of that of possibly what they began to think was, wait a minute, our, our intellect has let us down. Our will has let us down. Maybe our bodies can let us down as well. And also the punishment that God gave dealt with the physical. Pain and childbearing for for the women. Thorns and briars and such for mankind as they work in the fields and in the gardens. Physical side of things. They began to realize there is a mortality here. But they made that decision. And I've often wondered what gripped them. How much fear do they have when they realize that they had separated themselves from God and now they are mortal? I understand my mortality. What could possibly ever bring that back right? I am the life. What's the only reason why faithful Christians don't fear death? because of Jesus. What's the only reason that when we choose to sin, we know we can find a way back? It's because Jesus has said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, John chapter 10 and verse 10. And I would suggest to you that that was the solution even for Adam and Eve. Oh, they didn't know who Jesus was. This is centuries before Jesus ever came on the scene. But in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I heard someone say one time, and I've stolen it many times, it was beautiful, that God provided the solution before mankind ever knew he had a problem. That's the idea. That before mankind ever had a problem, he had Jesus on the cross in his mind already. The plan was already in place should mankind ever sin, and mankind did sin. And so when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they chose this this separation, and it gripped them with fear. What was their hope? The one who had become their life, who offers life. When you and I choose to sin, what's our hope? I am the life. We may not consciously choose sin as far as thinking through it in these difficult terminologies like we have this morning, but we understand that Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin. 
Just like Adam and Eve chose to sin back in the Garden of Eden, at times in our lives we are going to choose to sin. Hopefully we don't want to. And hopefully as our lives grow and as we continue to to think more about spiritual things, hopefully it becomes less and less that desire to sin. But we still war against temptation. Folks, if we would ever understand what sin really does, that sin really does break a relationship, a covenant with God. Not on His side of things, because He never moves. He's always faithful. But I've chosen to break that covenant. If I ever really understand that sin is saying, I know what God's will is. I know what God's word says. But I'm going to choose my own path, no matter what the outcome might be, because I think I know better. And if I would ever understand that sin is the separator, Why would I ever choose that? But when I do, what's the way out? Folks, it's it's not up to me. It's not to me to make things right. It's not to me to, to choose a way, to pick a way. Because I have chosen to break the covenant. I have no right then to say, here's how I'm going to come back. I'm going to dictate the terms for you taking. That's, that's not how a covenant works. When you break the covenant, the one who is innocent is the one who can set the terms of coming back. And that's why Jesus could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he could say it. He hasn't broken the covenant. We have. And so, instead of alienation... We have the way. Instead of ignorance and error, we have the truth. And instead of separation and death, we have the life. But some people look at John 14 and verse 6, or they hear someone preach on a verse like that, and they don't necessarily mind the first part all that much. But the second part of John 14, verse 6, they really don't like. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they say, that just sounds so closed-minded. That sounds so so exclusive, so narrow-minded. And we're supposed to be living in a tolerant, open-minded, anybody-goes, everything-goes kind of age. That cannot be the way it's supposed to be. That just cannot be right. There was a man who was raised in the state of Oklahoma in the early 1900s named John Griffith. John Griffith had a dream of traveling the world and seeing exotic places. And that is until the stock market crash of 1928, followed by the Great Depression. And considering he lived in Oklahoma, the Dust Bowl came. Took away all those dreams. And a writer named James Kennedy tells this story as exactly true, that John Griffith decided to finally take his family, his wife, his newborn baby, east as far as he could go, as far as he could afford to go on what little they had, and find a job somewhere. And he traveled to the Mississippi River where he got a job controlling the old bridges that went over the river, raising and lowering them over the Mississippi River. And in 1937, 
His eight-year-old son was with him for the very first time. His son had never gone to his job with him, but he decided to go to work with him and see what daddy did. And his daddy was in charge of those switch gates, and his son was just mesmerized that his daddy could push one lever, and his huge bridge would go up, or the train track would change. And his daddy could pull a lever, and the bridge would go down. And his son just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And he watched his daddy do that all morning long. And so about noon, his father set the bridge up because boats were supposed to be coming underneath the bridges, and they went out to have lunch by the shores of the Mississippi River. And his dad was telling stories. I wonder if this boat is going to New Orleans. Or I wonder if this, and he would tell about these places. He had always dreamed of going, but he knew he could never go now because he couldn't afford it. But his son was just mesmerized. Maybe this boat is going to Africa. Maybe this boat is going to South America. Maybe this boat is going to New Orleans and all these wonderful things until they heard a train coming. And his father in those days pulled out his pocket watch and looked and realized he had lost track of time. And it was time for the 107. The Memphis Express with 400 passengers on board. And he looked at his watch and realized he just had enough time to get back to the control room, push the lever so the bridge would come down and the train would go safely across the Mississippi River. He told his son, stay here and I'll go take care of this. And he ran as quickly as he could, went up to the control room and he looked down towards the river to make certain that no boats were about to pass under. But as he looked out there, he saw a sight that froze his blood. It was his son. And his son had followed him, but had fallen into the gearbox. And his leg was trapped between the two largest gears that controlled the bridge over the Mississippi River. James Kennedy tells the story and says that in the moments that passed, he he began to think, can I get to him? There's a rope that leads out the window. Maybe I can climb down the rope, climb across the catwalk, down a ladder, across the bridge, grab my son out, come back, but there's nowhere near enough time because he was hearing the train whistle and the train was about to come around the bend. John Griffith would tell the story himself that he lowered his face into his hands and pushed the lever. And as the train drew near the tracks, near the bridge, Somehow, Griffith got control of himself enough to look out the window of the control room and look into the windows of the train and see, as people were reading their newspaper, drinking their daily cup of tea, children were eating ice cream, and he beat his hand against the window of the control room, almost out of control, and began to scream. Of course, they couldn't hear him. They were on a train. But he, he began to scream, Don't you understand? I gave my son, and you don't care that he was the only way. And the train safely crossed the bridge and made its way to Memphis with no one realizing what had happened. Whenever I begin to think that John 14, verse 6 is too exclusive, too narrow-minded, too close-minded, I need to remember I broke the covenant And God is under no obligation to provide me any way back to Him.
But the same one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is the same one who said, for God so loved the world. If I may paraphrase, that he gave the way. And that way was his son. And this morning, God is looking down at each of us and saying, quit saying things are too narrow-minded and exclusive. Don't you know what I did? So this morning, instead of just reading your newspaper, let's follow the truth. Instead of just getting our daily glass of tea, let's make sure we're on the way. Instead of just sinking our spoons into some ice cream and going through life, let's follow the life. The same one who said, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father but through me, gets to set the terms. And he said, he said, I must believe in him. He said, I must repent or I'll perish. He said, I must confess him as Lord and as Savior. He said, I must be baptized in order to be saved. He has the right to say that. Because he paid the price. I have the choice to accept or reject it. But why would I ever reject it? And he said, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. He has no obligation to give me a crown. But praise God, if I'm faithful, he will. Are you ready to come to the Father, to have the relationship mended, to follow not your own way but the truth, and to no longer have the fear of death but to have eternal life? If so, don't wait. Come now. I'll be saying this thing to encourage you.